Welcome to the Piano Whisperer Podcast. You know, for me, I think that piano playing is one of the seminal human activities. It's only been around for three, four hundred years since the keyboard was invented. But, you know, thinking about all the different activities that one can engage in, there's very little, if anything, that's like classical piano. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Piano Whisperer. I feel so privileged today to have with me concert pianist Frederick Chu. With a vibrant concert schedule, a legacy of 30 CDs, and a stream of superlatives from major critics around the globe, pianist Frederick Chu occupies a special place in the world of classical music. In an eclectic career encompassing unusual collaborations and little played repertoire, along with explorations into the psychology of performance, Mr. Chu has demonstrated an ability to go beyond traditional boundaries. Fanfare magazine called his recorded performances playing on an exalted level, and BBC Music magazine called them stunningly virtuosic, with a sense of spontaneity that is often incandescent. The New Yorker included his version of Liszt's Anne de Palgrenage Italie, among their best classical albums of 2001. His Mendelssohn sonatas were declared Record of the Year by Stereo Review. This recording became a bestseller in the classical piano category. Live performances play a major role in his life. Mr. Chu has toured Europe and the U.S. with the Orchestra Britain and Stefan Sanderling. He has played with the Hartford Symphony, Dayton Philharmonic, Kansas City Symphony, Indianapolis Symphony, BBC Scottish Symphony, BBC Concert Orchestra, Estonia National Symphony, China National Symphony, the FOSJE Orchestra in Ecuador, among others. In recital, he performs in the world's most prestigious halls, including the Berlin Philharmonic, Kiyoe, and Suntory Halls in Tokyo, Lincoln Center in New York, and Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Mr. Chu's musical partners include Joshua Bell, Pierre Amoyal, Elmar Oliveira, Gary Hoffman, David Krakauer, Matt Hamvitz, and the St. Louis, Shanghai, and Daedalus String Quartets. He has worked with many composers, including George Crumb, Frederick Zuski, Bright Sheng, Gao Ping, and David Benoit. Frederick Chu's early career followed traditional avenues. His awards and competition wins included the prestigious Avery Fisher Grant Career Grant, Juilliard's Petschek Award and wins at contests run by the Music Teachers National Association and the Beethoven Foundation, now called the American Pianists Association. Over the years, Mr. Chu has become a prolific collaborator. He assisted Yamaha in establishing his brand as one of the world's great piano makers by providing critically valuable feedback to technicians as they develop some of their most important instruments. He also has fostered unique and ongoing projects with Shakespearean actor Brian Bedford, hip-hop artist so-called, and psychologist, writer, and clown Howard Booten. He recently launched some exciting and innovative new programs, Classical Smackdown and Patreon, which we will discuss later in this podcast. Somehow he also finds time for writing, painting, and cooking, and leading activities at Beachwood Arts, an arts immersion nonprofit he co-founded with his wife, Janine Esposito, in Connecticut. Lastly, but certainly not least, a very important component of his current work life is his teaching. He's on the faculty at both Carnegie Mellon University and the Hart School. He accepts a limited number of undergraduate and graduate students who learn the lesson that Chu himself has learned. Music is not an escape from life. It's a doorway into life. 
So Frederick Chu, welcome to Piano Whisper. It's such a privilege to have you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for that. Well, first, I would like to ask you about your childhood. I've read an awful lot about you, but I haven't read much at all about your early life and influences and early journey, except that you have a brother violinist. That's all I could find. So can you please tell us more about those early years and key moments along the way? Yeah, I think probably there's not much about the early years because they were pretty traditional for somebody who eventually becomes a classical pianist. I started piano lessons when I was six years old, pretty quickly uh, moved through the ranks, started studying with uh, university-level teachers when I was 10. My first serious teacher made me wear five-pound cast iron weights on my wrists while I did all of my practicing. See, that's what I wanted to hear. See, something like that. <laughs> I guess that's a little unusual. <laughs> it wasn't uh, enslaved labor, but my teacher had specific ideas. And thinking back on it, I think it was a pretty good one. Although I don't teach little kids, and I would hesitate to make them wear cast iron bracelets. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it did provide you know that kind of isometric resistance that one needs to develop muscles. So that did help me develop my technique, I think, very clearly, in fact. Yeah. And were there any specific key moments that stand out in your mind? Parenting, family dynamics? Tell me about them. All pretty straightforward. You know, I grew up in a Chinese-American household. Both my parents are immigrants from mainland China mm -hmm. and came to love classical music later in their lives, which became a passion as later loves can become. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember growing up always with music, the LPs, one after another, playing. There was nonstop great music. I think my parents had great taste. We heard all the great recording artists who were pianists, violinists, cellists. Uh, so I think it's not so mysterious that I became a pianist and my brother became a violinist. That's what we grew up with. I think what was unusual and lucky for us was we came on the right teachers. Uh, I know for myself, the teacher who made me wear cast iron bracelets gave me a, a very diverse range of repertoire to work on. Yeah. So that gave me my eclectic taste that lasts through today. Yeah. The teacher I studied with afterwards, Karen Shaw at Indiana University, she just recently passed, mm. but she made me start listening, which is kind of unusual, I guess, for a musician to say, I, I started listening when I was 16 years old. I started listening to the music I was playing, but mm -hmm. you know, that's classical piano. There's a lot of technical stuff. There's a lot of physical and perceptive stuff. There's so many tools and processes that have to be built before you get to the deep, deep parts of music that, uh, you know, for me, I just focused on the technical and process kind of stuff before really starting to think, oh, wow, this music is pretty amazing. Yeah. And we're going to get to some of the other deeper things that you're alluding to there later in the podcast. I'm excited to talk about that. So there's a lot online about your 1993 Van Cliburn competition experience mm -hmm. that essentially there was enormous protest by fans because you were eliminated before the final round. Right. This actually brought you some international notoriety. But now... You sought yourself as a judge for several national and international competitions yourself, including the American Pianist Association, the Utrecht International List Competition, the E-Competition, and even the Van Cliburn Outstanding Amateur Competition. I was wondering, did your 1993 Cliburn experience affect how you view competitions? And when you are yourself formally judging performers today, what do you consider most important in their performances? 
My relationship with competitions has been very intense and up and down. You know, when I was doing my studies, I was focusing on a traditional approach to building a career. And a big part of that is entering competitions and hopefully winning some and parlaying them into performance opportunities and promotional opportunities. But you know, the competition setup where you have lots of very diverse judges with diverse opinions trying to come to some kind of agreement about something that's ultimately very personal and very subjective. Yeah, The math and computer science side of me, which is very, very strong, started analyzing stuff. And I used all my statistics, knowledge, and skills to kind of figure out some scenarios and realize that it was mathematically actually counter to this subjective kind of music-making individualized approach to music. I just looked at it on that very objective level, and I wasn't in an emotional place, in a psychological place when I was graduating from Juilliard and about to embark on this, what would be a traditional competition path. Mm -hmm. I wasn't ready to deal with that. And so I had this opportunity to go to Paris with an artist residency and to not have to do competitions. And so I decided I'm not going to do any more competitions. I'll create my career somehow, some other way. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, after five years of being free of competitions, all of a sudden I felt psychologically more confident and ready to put myself in the ring for the Van Cliver. Mm -hmm. And that was the only competition that I did after I decided not to do anymore. I, I did that one for very strategic reasons. One being that they had opened up the repertoire to be completely free. Mm. So I was able to play all of my transcriptions and all of my Prokofiev in the competition without having to worry about the fact that I didn't play any Bach or Mozart or Beethoven or Chopin, you know, any of the standard piano repertoire. Yeah, gotcha. And then the fact that it was in the U.S. and I had been living in Paris at that point for many years and I wanted an entry into the U.S. concert scene. And the fact that it was a festival, basically. It's one of the great festivals of piano that happens around the world. Yeah, And that benefited me. And I think my approach to it as a festival versus as a competition, where I would be judged and rated, that changed my emotional perception. And that's how I'm able to now completely, with great pleasure and sense of uh, responsibility, put myself in the jury seat and encourage students to go to competitions because I want them to be psychologically prepared in the right way to benefit from these amazing opportunities, yeah. which are basically the world of piano uniting for a short period of time, kind of like the Olympics and the spotlight that that puts on these personalities. It's not about what happens during the competition in terms of who wins. It's about, ooh, let's listen to what's going on in the piano world. And aren't these artists amazing, even though they don't win a so we can still enjoy them and look for them afterwards. Yeah. How do you assess them in terms of trying to choose a competition winner? Is it essentially how much your emotional meter gets moved by them? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Does one try to be objective? I think that's a little bit futile. Yeah. I have come to the perspective of I want to be viscerally and intuitively moved by playing. And then I can turn my attention to more of the knowledge and experience and factual kind of stuff just to make sure that it's solid and make sure that it's backed up. But I want that emotional hook. Yeah, That's what I teach my students. The, the primary thing that you're looking for is not to play these notes in, in this order. But to do that with a purpose, and that purpose is to create an emotional hook. Otherwise, nobody's listening to you. 
If nobody's listening, then everything that you do is useless. Yeah, it's communication. Mm -hmm. Well, you have recorded 30 albums, and you've recorded such a diverse range of composers, Chopin, Mendelssohn, Liszt, Grieg, Rossini, Ravel, Schoenberg, Schubert, Beethoven, and Brahms, and the complete piano works of Prokofiev. Can you share some of the motivations which inspire you to record a particular composer? This might sound silly, but you mentioned in one of your web pages that listeners, quote, might be surprised at what influences have an impact on an artist, such as the role of vegetable gardening, cooking, practicing in the pitch dark, etc. So I was curious to know what kinds of things lead you to commit to taking on a specific composer at a certain point in time. Do you sometimes have epiphanies out of the blue or is the process more pragmatic? I'm just curious. I would say that I'm open to my intuition and there are projects that jump out at me. Some of them that happen right away because they also kind of fit the agenda of the different labels and or audiences that are asking for things. And sometimes it takes many, many years to get something to the table and to actually get it done. Mm -hmm. Things like Chopin, people want Chopin. And when you start doing the etudes, then you're going to do all the etudes. <laughs> yeah, I see. And so part of my programming of the Chopin etudes was, you know, I want to do these iconic pieces that everybody knows, but how can I pair them with something that people don't know? Yeah. And what is in Chopin that's not known? There's not very much. And that's where I found the rondos, mm -hmm. the four rondos, which uh, I paired with the Opus 10 etudes. And that was a great programming decision. And I can claim credit for that because it just came to me in a flash. Mm. Other things like the hymns and dervishes, music by Gurdjieff, that was a project that I had been dreaming of mm. for 15 years before finally, with the advent of crowdsourcing, Kickstarter, being able to, to go directly to the people who are going to listen to this recording and get the funding necessary to make it. Mm -hmm. That was what allowed hymns and dervishes to get made. And that was an amazing project that still gets hundreds of thousands of streams today. Yeah, it's a beautiful album. It's beautiful. And it's so different than what all of my other repertoire was. There was no reason for a label to say, oh, since you did such a great Chopin, let's do Gurdjieff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing that, that just requires some just constant, constant pushing and prodding and guiding. Mm-hmm. You know, it was brutal because I had to limit what I wanted to play on this podcast for your music. And that album in particular, I wanted to play a piece off of that. Anyway, I encourage listeners to find it and listen because it's a beautiful record. And I would have played lots of cuts of many different albums if I had the time to do so, but I had to choose. But I read in your Yamaha artist bio that you are eager to bring serious music to a larger audience. And this certainly seems consistent with the activities in your life. But can you tell us what drives you most to do this? You could keep teaching pianists and performing periodically and still make a living, but you seem continually inspired and motivated. So I was curious where the fuel was coming from. You know, for me, I think that piano playing is one of the seminal human activities. I mean, it's only been around for three, four hundred years since the keyboard was invented. Yeah. But, you know, in thinking about all the different activities that one can engage in, there's very little, if anything, that's like classical piano with its 400 years of repertoire to explore. 
basically of human innovation and emotional exploration that's there to explore if you can figure out these black and white keys. Mm. <laughs> There's the multitasking that happens when one plays piano. I tell my students, the first lesson, the teacher says, play these in the right hand and play these in the left hand. You have a melody and an accompaniment and boom, you're multitasking. Yep. It's a seminal part of playing the piano. And it's great to play the piano, but even listening to piano music, I'm hearing these notes and that's a melody. I'm hearing these notes and that's an accompaniment. Boom, you're multitasking. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most complex, deep, satisfying, emotionally satisfying multitasking activities that's out there. Mm -hmm. I would encourage your listeners to reflect on that. You know, what is there as an activity that's so dense and rich and has such history and is so multi-layered and so enjoyable. And one can participate as a passive listener. One can participate as a super active performer, amateur or professional. There's nothing like it. And so I really feel like the more I, as a pianist, can inspire people to sit down with a piano recording and listen to it and start getting that thrill that comes from, wow, I'm hearing two things at once and they're interacting and it's harmonious and it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's transcendent, right? Absolutely. That's the universal language part. It's cognitive before language because of this multi-layered interactive kind of symbolic language that music has evolved into. And especially piano. I think it's very different even compared to other instruments. The piano still has a very special place. Yeah. Well, that's a great answer. Thank you. So this brings us to the modern times, concerts during COVID times. In my view, you have been reinventing the concert pianist's life. You've developed some really ingenious ways of interacting with music lovers and fans through your Patreon program, Frederick Chu's Friends Club. But also you came up with the Classical Smackdown program, which I think is really fun. Can you talk about these programs? And before you do, I want to mention your upcoming live streams on May 27th and June 24th. So listeners will want to check out your website for more information on those. Again, that's May 27th and June 24th. Okay, so tell us about Patreon and Classical Smackdown. Well, Classical Smackdown is a program that I've been doing for many seasons, and now there are three programs as part of that series. And they're all the same structure, where I have two composers, and I pick pieces from each composer, put them next to each other, and round by round, ask people to listen and then to vote for their favorite. Yeah, And it's a, it's a great interactive program. It's great for people who have absolutely no idea who the composers are, who's never heard them before. And it's great for people who have heard them and who even play them and know them intimately to suddenly find themselves face-to-face -face with contrasting pieces or incredibly similar pieces. And they have to choose. It requires a certain kind of engagement, a certain kind of perception that one usually doesn't turn on at a classical piano concert. And it creates a different kind of listening. Yeah. One of the great pleasures for me is being backstage at the end of a classical SmackDown concert. And I look behind the curtain and everybody is in their seats. The lights have come on and they're just sitting there and they're discussing and debating and you have kids and older people and grandparents and they're all like discussing with each other this music that they've just heard. And I think that just doesn't happen at other kinds of piano recitals. Yeah. Usually people run to get their car out of the parking lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a great feeling and, and I think it's a great engagement so that's the, the May 27th and June 24th. That's an opportunity for people to be online 
seeing the second and third programs of the series live, voting live using text and getting instant results of the polling during the concert. So that's going to be a really uh, exciting moment. I encourage your listeners to join in on that. I encourage them as well. And I am imagining that people are not usually in agreement on how they feel about the music, right? When they're making the comparisons. Yeah, they aren't in agreement, even though there are only two choices. (laughs) Yeah. And very often people aren't even in agreement with themselves. Like many people will come to a concert and they say, you know, I love Debussy. I'm just going to vote for Debussy straight down the ticket. (laughs) And then they hear the pieces and I've chosen things to make it a really hard choice. And I'm advocating for both. I'm not advocating for Prokofiev over Debussy or Debussy over Prokofiev. I'm arguing for both of them at the same time. Yeah. And a lot of those people, (laughs) they write on the ballots or they tell me afterwards, I was convinced I was going to vote Debussy. Straight ticket, and you made me vote for Prokofiev. Yeah. Or I was going to vote for Bach, but you made me vote for Philip Glass. Wow. And I can't believe it because I used to hate Philip Glass or whatever. (laughs) I've changed people's minds about composers that they felt they knew over a lifetime of listening, that they knew that that was their preference. And that's great. And so I think that that could only happen in a concert like this, where you're actually asking people to put on paper or put a vote out there, like, this is how I'm listening today. This is how I'm feeling today. And it could change tomorrow. It makes people aware of their changing tastes and their changing moods and their changing sense of perception of music. Yeah, that's wonderful. And the Patreon program is basically the umbrella for that platform, right? Yeah, Patreon is kind of an extension of that. It's a way for my fan base to interact with me in a way that goes beyond just those Every few years, you know, I come to their city or their location and play a live concert. Every you know, couple of years, I put out an album. You know, that's very limited, I think, in today's world where it's all about Googling stuff and getting the instant answer. Yeah. People want more constant interaction. They want to be able to, oh, you know, I'm in the mood for Frederick Chu's Prokofiev. Go online and listen to that. Yeah. They want whatever I'm doing, they want it to be more accessible in the moment. And Patreon. I call it FC by FC. It's a way for me to benefit them and for them to benefit me with a more direct kind of interaction. I get to share studio recordings that haven't been commercially released. I get to share record notes that I've written that haven't been published. I get to share photos and videos of me uh, in the studio working on the next project. I get Zoom calls with patrons. It's really a way to just open up all the channels and create that connection. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing about that. So now I want to talk about your work with Yamaha. As I understand it, you aided significantly in the development of their world-renowned CFX Concert Grand, which was, in my opinion, a game changer for Yamaha. And you also worked with Yamaha on further developing their Disclavier technology. Can you tell us first about how you participated with the CFX development and secondly about your work with Disclavier? My relationship with Yamaha started 30 plus years ago when I was in Paris and I was part of a small team of young pianists who would break in pianos, prototypes that were sent from Japan, and we would practice on them for days and days and then submit our critiques of them. And all of that was sent to Japan and they would incorporate that into the development of their concert pianos. Mm. 
one great thing about Yamaha is they're constantly doing R&D on an instrument that's been around for hundreds of years, but amazingly, it can still be improved and Yamaha does improve it. And this is how they do that. So I've been part of that informal testing team for decades. Mm -hmm. In terms of Disclavier, I have been one of a number of pianists who are out there in the field using this instrument, trying to find ways to bring this technology either in the education field or in the performance field to use the tools that the Disclavier provides. And I've done concerts where I play two piano repertoire with my own Disclavier recording with video, where I play duets with myself, where I do remote concerts with people at the other end in a different geographic place. Just finding ways to use Yamaha's technology in an artistic way that makes people think, wow, the piano can do this, then let's explore this and that, opening up the possibilities of what classical piano can be. Right. All with an artistic purpose. Can you give us an example of how you would use the Disclavier artistically in a situation like that? I mean, there's one thing, as you say, you can be in Connecticut and you can perform a concert on a piano in London, you know, as long as those pianos are online with each other. But in terms of using it for other artistic purposes, can you give us a sense of what that might look like? Well, for example, I go to this two piano program where I'm playing with my own Disclavier recording with video. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to create a program that included two piano and one piano solo repertoire. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. And just move seamlessly from one to the other. So I paired, for example, Debussy's Cloche à travers les feuilles, which is an amazing solo piano piece that explores the deepest kind of exploration of Impressionism by Debussy. Mm-hmm. And I paired that with Debussy's own transcription of Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. Mm-hmm. which is for two pianos. And you would never hear those two pieces back to back, number one, because Prelude to the Fawn is an orchestral piece, so you have to hear it in a transcription. Mm-hmm. If you're doing a two piano transcription, you're not going to hear a solo piano things because that's just not how things are programmed. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I'm putting these two pieces, which should be heard one after another, because they talk to each other, these pieces. Yeah. And I do that completely seamlessly because it's just me playing. I happen to be playing two pianos. I happen to be playing one piano. Yeah. And that's a great example of an artistic way to use the technology. Of course, it's impressive and spectacular. And people are saying, ooh, how is he playing with his own recording? You know, how can he do two piano stuff? Of course, that happens. And people ask. And it's a wonder for a while. But then you settle into the music. Yeah, yeah. And that's a great example. And I appreciate that. Tell me the CFX work. So the CFX was a game changer for me personally. I think it was a game changer in the concert piano world. Can I ask what work you did with Yamaha to help them to create this great piano? That first era of testing that I mentioned uh, when I was in Paris, that was to develop the CF3S, mm-hmm. which was the precursor to the CFX. Mm-hmm. And that kind of testing of prototypes and input just continued through those decades. And in the final stages, Yamaha sent a number of prototypes to New York, and I was one of the few Yamaha artists who were invited to come and play and test them over the course of many days, giving feedback. And the pianos were very different. Hmm. They were all great, but they definitely went in different directions in terms of the kind of sound and the kind of sound image that one wanted from a piano. And we discussed technical things, we discussed philosophical things, and musical things, and somehow all of that got sent back to Yamaha. 
I'm not a piano tech. I'm not trained in piano tech, but I have a special affinity and curiosity for piano tech stuff. Yeah. And even so, I just gave them my pianist feedback and they magically turned it into great things at the piano. And when the CFX appeared, I was just blown away by the instrument and also by the diversity of the instrument because it, it is handcrafted and it changes from one instrument to the other. Yeah. But there's something kind of core, which is in every instrument. It's fascinating. Yeah. I was blown away when I first played a CFX as well. I didn't necessarily think that was impossible, if you will. So now I want to take a listen to your music. I'm going to play excerpts from two pieces. The first piece, Ravel's Un Bac sur l'Océan, was recorded almost 30 years ago. Oh, wow. I know, right? Yeah. But I feel it captures you really well artistically. I, I don't really have words to describe the artistry you employed to create the aesthetic that you did. So we'll just have to use our ears and listen to that. The second piece was recorded in 2015 on the new CFX, which, as I mentioned, was the game-changing concert grand you helped Yamaha to develop. The dynamic range you pulled out of this piano, to me, is mind-blowing, as is the array of tone colors you produced. I chose to play Debussy's Cloche de Traverse Les Fugues because there seemed to be no limits to what you could express on that piece. So before we listen, though, I do want to thank our generous sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes all these episodes possible. So let's listen to Frederick Chu.
Frederick, that's so impressive. You explore such a wide range of dynamics and you capture the inner human dynamics so well. I attribute it all to capturing man's inconsolable longing, mm. which is a German philosophic standpoint called Sehnsucht, which C.S. Lewis later adopted. But it's, we're inconsolable on this side of heaven and we're just so filled with emotions and so forth. And you really, I feel, captured that. And also the ambiguity of life, right? Like, what are we feeling? We know we're struck by something. Mm -hmm. And I feel all those colors and dynamics, we can ride the wave of that in that music. And I thank you for that. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for the music. And so now this brings me to your deeper piano studies program, which is a philosophic, holistic approach to music and covers so many angles of being a pianist, but also it covers angles of being a person. Would you tell us more about this program and why you developed it? Yeah, to just expand on what you just said, that's my belief is that the piano is a way to enter into the greater world and not an escape from it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if one becomes a better person, one becomes naturally then a better pianist and vice versa. If one becomes a better pianist, one can apply those things that you learn and master in the piano world to help you improve your overall life. And that's kind of what deeper piano studies is. And I, I call it deeper performance studies now. I kept the P. <laughs> there was a big demand on the part of non-pianists after a few years of doing deeper piano studies. Word got around and I started having violinists and cellists and singers and even dancers and actors who wanted to do the program. And I just a few years ago created a, a leadership training program with my wife, who's an innovation specialist. And we combined our stuff together and created a program for leadership training, the inner and the outer world of the leader. Hmm. And that's DPS basically for non-musicians, which also works very, very well. That is so cool. Those are the principles. And it's been very successful, especially during the pandemic. I've translated all of my workshops that used to be in-person and one-on-one -on -one to online versions, and they work very, very well. Yeah, you've been doing amazingly well with that. And I think you're creating some intimacy that maybe would even be, strangely, and I hate to say this, it's almost in some respects more intimate because you can reach this group of people right up close and personal, right? Yeah, I did a DPS workshop last year that had people from California, New York, Hong Kong, South Korea, and Berlin. Yeah. And we met throughout the week <laughs> and we worked on stuff together and it was amazing. And it would never have happened. You know, nobody's going <laughs> to fly a group like that into one place geographically. Yeah. So it, it has opened things up uh, in an amazing way. It's one of the surprise joys during this time. I think so. That we are still finding ways to connect with people on deep levels. And so DPS is essentially, it's a full integration program, right? Where you're integrating the whole being, right? Yes. Using that amazing and rare thing, which is piano training, to leverage that to be a better person. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Well, there are several other things I wanted to discuss, like your relationship with the Prokofiev family, surgical peddling and so forth, but we just <laughs> don't have time. But is there anything you'd like to discuss that I haven't covered? Well, as you imply, this is an ongoing conversation. I hope we have another opportunity at some point to talk about some of those other things. Well, I'd love that. That'd be great. So please tell people how they can find out more about you. And this is also, by the way, a perfect time to self-promote. So you're welcome to plug anything you wish. But tell folks how they can find out more. Uh, I think the best way is to go to frederickchu.com. And on that front page, I always highlight some of the latest things. So the Classical Smackdown series is on there. 
The FC by FC Project Two Friends Club is there for the Patreon. Some of the things about Disclavier, and there's a lot to explore there. Lots of tracks with the Patreon. It's great because I can share with members some of the tracks that have been in my iTunes catalog, but not public. There's my private studio recording, so I get to share those through the Patreon. So I encourage people to join up. That's wonderful, and I will say this: it is perhaps the most rich artist website I've ever browsed. And I spent a lot of hours there, but you really have a lot going on on your website. So thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's true. I would encourage listeners to check that out. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me, Frederick. I really enjoyed learning about you and listening to your recordings. I was completely impressed by all you've accomplished and actually how giving of yourself you are. I found that truly remarkable. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure to give a little during this podcast, and uh, I look forward to more. I look forward to that as well. And of course, I want to thank all of you listening out there. As I probably say every week, without you, none of this would be worthwhile. So I'm entirely grateful for you. If you'd like to find out more about Piano Whisperer, or if you would like to explore earlier episodes, please visit pianowhisperer.org. You can also find us on all of the streaming platforms. Many thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And thanks again to our sponsor, Classic Pianos, who makes these ongoing podcasts possible. To learn more about Piano Whisperer and to hear earlier broadcasts, please visit pianowhisperer.org. We would be grateful if you would take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Podbeam, and TuneIn. See you next time.